Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 5, Episode 6, brought to you by Lifetree at PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name is Rick. I'm the leader of the band here as we pay ridiculous attention to Jesus. Where does that come from? It comes from wanting to get so close to Jesus' heart that we're radiated by it. And that that's really what transformation looks like. It's It's not a self-help scheme. It's getting close to the thing that will radiate you and change you from the inside out. That's what radiation does, by the way. Everything in the created world is a metaphor. That's what Romans 1 tells us. So what can we learn from radiation? Well, if you get close to it, it's going to change you. And uh, it's a good metaphor for Jesus. So I'm an author. I uh, Last year, I released a book called The God Who Fights For You. And the year before that, it was Spiritual Grit. And the year before that, it was The Jesus-Centered Life. And I think the year before that, I was the general editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible, uh, uh, released about four or five years ago now. Um, it's now crossed over, I think it's now sold uh, upwards of 150,000 copies of the Jesus-Centered Bible, and that's a miraculous, crazy, insane thing, because we're not really a Bible publisher. Uh, we just have a passion for Jesus, and created a Bible that has all kinds of extra features in it that draw you to Jesus no matter where you're reading in the Bible. And a lot of these features are just one of a kind. So uh, I want to just invite you to check out the Jesus Center Bible if you haven't already. Just go to group.com. You'll you'll easily find it. Uh, if you just search there for the Jesus Center Bible, just go to group.com. So, and in this fall, I've been telling you, uh, in early October... Um, the new Jesus Center Daily Daily Devotional will be available. Um, this has been uh, like not a marathon, more like a hundred mile mountain trail run for me. It, it this this journey of writing the Jesus Center Daily started oh probably a year and a half ago now, and um, my life has been consumed with this project in the margins of my life and. Um, I am right now uh, revising, working through all of the devotions, revising them as it goes through the editorial process. So I just finished the end of July in the revisions, so I'm plowing ahead. And um, by the end of February, that thing will uh, be designed, and then it'll start to move through our process, and it'll come out in October. So we'll talk a little more about that as the time gets near. So today, in this episode, we're in the second episode of a new series I'm calling Foundations. And essentially what we're doing is we're exploring the foundational truths connected to Jesus and his mission in our lives, sort of the building blocks of, of uh, our life with Jesus, and, and the building blocks of his mission, which is to bring freedom to captives and to restore us to relationships. So today we're going to focus on and a really important building block, so much so that, that you could call this uh, Jesus' job description— and so today's episode is called Destroying the Works of the Devil, and this is essentially what uh, Scripture tells us Jesus came to do, to destroy the works of the devil. So you probably heard this strange phrase before. It's a very churchy, religious-y kind of phrase, kind of a off-putting phrase, 
but it is central to the heart of Jesus and central to his mission to destroy what the devil intends to uh, establish in the world. So obviously that begs the question, what is the devil trying to establish in the world? What is his mission in our life? And how is Jesus countering that and destroying that work? So I, I wonder, have you, ever, you probably have played that game before, um, two truths and a lie. I bet you have, where you, where you tell three things that are about your life, and two of them are true and one of them is a lie, and your partner has to figure out which one is the lie. So let's, let's play that right now. Um, let me give you three examples from my life, and let's see if you can pick out which one of these is the lie. So the first one is that I was a street evangelist in Rome for a season of my life. I, I literally um, told people about Jesus on the streets of Rome for a season of my life. Um, the second one is that I've actually piloted a glider. I actually piloted a glider, if you can believe it or not. And then the third one is that I've had a private audience with the Pope. So there's the three. I was a street evangelist in Rome, I piloted a glider, or I had a private audience with the Pope. I'll give you um, two beats of the heart to decide which one of those is the lie. Man, I'm looking through the window here at Julia. Julia, which one is it? Is it street evangelist, glider, or private audience with the Pope? Oh, she's. I got my glasses off. She's raising number one. She does not believe I was a street evangelist in Rome. Wow, I feel disconcerted now. Because that one's actually true. I was a street evangelist in Rome. I actually uh, uh, did street dramas to uh, to collect a crowd with my uh, uh, um, evangelism school uh, compatriots. We would go out in the streets of Rome. We'd do a street drama, and we'd get a bunch of people around us. And then when it was done, we'd go talk to them. Yeah, that was another life uh, altogether. Um, and it's actually true. I've had a private audience with the Pope. So... Well, private, if you consider that I had about 60 seconds with him in a room with a group of about 50 people that were in that evangelism school. We, we actually got to meet the Pope personally, and uh, so he went around the whole circle of us, and he had a, a private conversation with each person, and so that, uh, that I actually have a picture of that uh, meeting in my, uh, in my little office cubicle, and I like to, to put it out there because people kind of walk past there and then they take a second look and they're like, did you Photoshop that? Nope, that's actually me with the Pope. But I have not piloted a glider. I, I have not done that because, um, well, I'd probably be dead now if I was the pilot of a glider. I think you probably have to have more experience as a pilot to pilot a glider than a regular plane. But I have not done that. But So then uh, when you think about this game, Two Truths and a Lie, and even the process I went through to create the lie, what does it take to really tell a good lie? And I had to kind of get inside my own head and think, well, what did it take for me to come up with a lie that was plausible enough to at least fool Julia? Um, what, what did that take? Well, I think here's some elements. You're probably thinking of some yourself, but here's some that I thought of um, when I was creating this lie. I, I, you have to sell out to the lie. I mean, you have to really... Uh, believe in whatever lie it is you're telling. You have to really go all in with it, and you have to be creative with it, but not too creative. I mean, it can't be so outlandish that it draws attention to it. It has to be creative enough, I guess is what I'm I'm thinking. It also has to be on some level plausible. It can't be just insane. 
because uh, it will draw suspicion if it is. So it can be creative and kind of out there, but it has to be somehow plausible. It has to look true. Uh, think about this. It has to look true next to things that really are true. It has to somehow fit amongst those things that are true. All of those things, if you think about it, um, the skill of deception is not outright lying. The skill of deception is, qu is quite artful, actually. Maybe you've known people in your life, I have known people in my life, that have quote-unquote lived a lie in some area of their life, and um, I'm thinking of one person in particular in my past who uh, left a wake of devastation and destruction behind him um, once his lie was found out, but oh my gosh, I knew this person for many years and I had no idea of the lies that he was that he was keeping underneath the surface because he was really good at passing off his whole life as truth, and he was really good at um, uh, delivering plausible lies. I guess is the best way to say it. If he, if he had stuck out, if he was if he smelled suspicious, um, he would never have made a good liar. But there's a skill of deception. Well, well, maybe you can. Maybe we can reference back the way Jesus describes Satan, that he's an angel of light. He appears to be an angel of light. So what Jesus is saying is that Satan comes off as something really attractive and true, but there's a dark, deceptive underbelly. He he says Satan has been a liar and the father of lies from the very beginning, but again. The, a good lie is like a baited hook. Uh, the, if there's no bait on the hook, the fish isn't going to go for it. So a good lie has to have bait that looks like real food, or the fish won't chomp down on it. And the, it's important to understand when we're trying to understand what Jesus is doing in destroying the works of the devil, we have to understand how the devil works. And the devil works by baiting hooks. He wants things that seem tasty enough to chomp down on. So in our last episode, we explored the big problem facing Jesus and us. And of course, it's rooted in the betrayal and disobedience of Adam and Eve. And the big problem um, is really the relational betrayal and its consequences resulting from sin, disobedience, and betrayal. So the, the, the effect of Adam and Eve's disobedience and them giving in to the deception of the evil one is relational, a relational break. And so the problem that exists is there's this chasm between us and God now, and he has to somehow figure out how to bridge that chasm, how to, how to invite us back into relationship, um, and he can't force it, and he can't do it illegally. It sounds kind of funny, do it illegally. But that is essentially what Satan um, said to God, that you, whatever you do, you can't, you can't betray yourself in doing it. You can't do something that's illegal. There's, you have set up a system, God, where the consequence of sin is death. Where's my death? Um, that death has to be permanent. So um, Satan is essentially saying that there's boundaries around however you're trying to fix this, and you can't cheat. You can't be a cheater, God, because everything will fall apart here. So, so what does Jesus do as a result of the problem? And, uh, and 
how does he invite us into the solution to that problem? Because he's not going to fix it on his own. His mission in our lives is directly tied to this problem. Everything he's doing in our life is, is an attempt to counteract and overcome the problem so that we can be in rich, intimate relationship with, with him again. So, of course, when Adam and Eve ate of that forbidden fruit, they did it because they were deceived, but let's, let's revisit the nature of that deception. Because every problem or challenge we have in life is really emanating from this first deception and its consequences, it's important to sort of slow down and try to understand the nature of the virus. I just heard on, the, uh, on uh, NPR yesterday that the CDC, the Centers for De- Disease Control, has uh, uh, received the genetic makeup of the coronavirus from Chinese medical officials. And so they have it in preparation for if this becomes a bigger deal in the United States. So they have decoded the genetic makeup of this virus, and now they know how to create a test for it. Uh, that's what the story was about. Um, how are they going to, how's the CDC going to create um, lots and lots of these tests, and how are they going to help other people around the country to administer the test? Well, you have to understand the virus before you can do that. So let's, let's understand the virus that we're dealing with here um, that emanated from what Adam and Eve did early on in Genesis. So I'm going I'm to read a couple of little portions here. One is from Genesis chapter 2, 15 through 17. Let's say that that is the, the beginning of the deception, and we're going to combine that with a little section from Genesis 3, 1 through 7, because uh, that these two things are connected directly to each other. So, so here we go. Let's go back to the ground zero of this deception. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Now we're skipping forward to Genesis 3. Well, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Well, of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you'll die. (laughs) You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. Look, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give to her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it, and then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness, so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. There you have it. There's their, there's the deception. So let's uh, slow down and pay some ridiculous attention to this, this scene. The first question is, early on, when God is warning Adam and Eve about that tree in the middle of the garden, um, and he's saying, remember this, you can eat any tree in the garden, but you can't eat that one, and the only thing I'm telling you is you don't eat the fruit, um, because if you do, here's what will happen, you will be sure to die. 
So what does God mean by this, that you're sure to die? Um, when they eat of the apple, it's not like they're eating a poison apple in Snow White, where they immediately die from eating the apple. They go on living. But something radical changes, doesn't it? That if, if God says you're sure to die if you eat of this tree and they don't die right away, then what is he really saying? He's saying, I think, that the process of death now is that the, the, the world that he created and his beloved, were, death was never meant to be a part of that creation. Death is, impinges upon creation. Death is a violation of God's heart. We see this later on. Uh, I, th- I think this is what explains um, this scene in the, in the Gospels when Jesus delays going to heal his friend Lazarus, and while he delays, Lazarus dies and is entombed, and by the time Jesus gets there, he's already been three days in the tomb, and people are weeping, and uh, for obvious reasons, Lazarus is dead. Mary and Martha are incredibly upset, and they're very upset with Jesus for not coming sooner. And in that passage, what we learn is that when Jesus sees everyone grieving around Lazarus, he gets angry. And then when he gets to the tomb to raise Lazarus from the dead, it says he's still angry when he gets to the tomb. Well, the question is, why is he angry? And I think, because, look, um, he, he knew what he was doing. He knew that Lazarus would be dead by the time he got there. He knew people would be grieving. He knew Mike, Mary, and Martha would be upset with him. He knew all of that um, in advance. You don't have to be a prophet to understand the dynamic that would happen here if he comes late and lets his best friend die. So he knew all that would happen. So why is he so angry? I think he's angry because of this one truth, that death is fundamentally um, not part of God's plan uh, for his creation, that death is an aberration, that death is an enemy. So when God says to Adam and Eve, if you eat of that fruit, you're sure to die, it sets in motion the uh, momentum of death in human beings. Um, This fruit is from, again, this is important to remember, from the tree of knowledge, uh, of the knowledge of good and evil, where um, they go from dependent on God's goodness to choosing a dependence on their own goodness. You see how that works? the, The eating of the apple is a severing of their dependence on God and a and a, a doubling down on their dependence on themselves. Essentially, what Eve is trying to do is become independent from God. She can be her own God, and Adam can be his own God, uh, because now they have the same knowledge as God. And God tells them, if you do this, you will introduce a virus into humanity that carries with it death. So that's the, 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 the first important thing to pay attention to, the second thing is, well, what, what are all the lies that the devil tells Adam and Eve, and why exactly are, there lie, are they lies? So the, the first thing that we read here is, he says, did God really say you must not eat from any of the trees in the garden? So his first lie is to expand what God said from one tree to any tree. He basically misrepresents what God has said, knowing he's misrepresenting it, and he's planting something that's a lie 
plausibly next to the truth. So it's just a little slight tweak of the truth, and that's how deception works. It's a slight tweak of the truth. So Eve is on to this one. She says, well, no, he didn't say we couldn't eat from any tree. It's just that one tree in the middle of the garden. And then for for reasons we don't quite understand, Eve um, adds on to what God actually said. She says that God told her she must not eat it or even touch it, and if you do, you will die. Well, God never said, don't touch the tree, don't touch the fruit. He just said, don't eat it. So uh, Eve is already uh, magnifying and twisting a little bit of what God has said. If you think about it this way, Satan is trying to engage her and deceive her, and he already sees that she's deceiving, she's already herself deceiving by blowing this story out of proportion. So he has he has some good possibility here that he can turn her, because he, she's already showing an openness to deception. And so the serpent replies to her, you're not going to die, which is a flat out, He's what he's flat out saying here is that God told you a lie, he said you would die, but that's a cover for the truth. What God really doesn't want is you to elevate yourself to his status. And you know what? If this, if we had a longer version of this conversation, I could imagine Satan saying, you know what? He did the same thing to me. He told me that I couldn't be like him. Well, I am. It's possible. So, of course, he doesn't want you to be like him. He's a small-minded, um, jealous, um, uh, and uh, oppressive God. He doesn't want any competition, even though we deserve that, don't we? So the serpent tells the woman, of course you won't die, you know, direct contradiction to God. And then he explains God's motivation, and this is, this is the, really the heart of his deception— have you ever uh, been? Um, have you ever been described um, to someone with motivations that aren't really true about why you were motivated to do something? Have you ever heard someone say or assume that you were motivated to do something and it really isn't true? They've visited that motivation on you. It's very powerful when that happens because what they do is they pick out plausible reasons why they have come to that conclusion that you were motivated this way but it's actually a lie, and that's what happens here. Satan makes an, uh, an assumption to Eve about how God is motivated, why he would say that to Adam and Eve. Here's what he says, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. So he's basically saying he knows that you'll elevate your status to his status, and he doesn't want that, because he's that kind of God. Can you believe it? So he starts to cast aspersions on the heart of God that God's motivations may not be pure and may not be for them at their fundamental level. And he presents himself as the one who is for them. Hey, I'm just trying to help you get what you deserve. Hey, I'm just trying to help you elevate yourself and get out from under the shadow and the thumb of this God who can't stand it, that there might be others as beautiful and good as he is. So I'm trying to help you. So Satan comes alongside them as a helper, quote-unquote. And this, in the end, convinces the woman, and she eats from the fruit of the tree and um, discovers suddenly, because her, uh, her eyes are open and so are Adam's, 
that they, that they discover shame for the first time. And that is the fundamental response to our brokenness and sin, is shame. Not just shame over what you've done, but shame over who you are. That's what's so powerful about this, this little vignette here. They felt shame over their nakedness. Not shame over eating the apple, shame over who they were, that they were exposed now. And so this is called fundamental shame, and we all have it. It's the shame that comes with being born into sin. Um, and this is where it all begins. And so it says that they sewed the fig leaves together to cover cover over their nakedness. So so uh, there's a lot of lying going on in this short little interaction. But let's think about then what is, if we're looking for the virus, the genetic code of this virus that was planted right here in this scene, how would we describe that one virus represented by all of those lies? I think the best way to sum it up is uh, using Satan's own words. You can be like gods. That is the central virus of humanity. It's the, it's the thing that caused Adam and Eve to give in to deception, is this thought that they themselves could be like gods independently uh, and, and, and forever severed from relationship with God. Why do you need him anyway? You can be your own God. So the, you see this, uh, the, the sort of branches of this tree um, all around us, the, that this central lie, this central deception, the, the virus that was planted in humanity, still continuing today. So where do we see evidence of it? Well, the you know, huge self-help industry that promises that you can get control of your life, you can be on top of your life, you can have the success you've always dreamed of, you can be, uh, you can have uh, the body and the face and the hair um, that you've always wanted. Uh, all of that is possible if you just marshal the great and powerful uh, 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 capability of your humanness. So we see it in the self-help industry, or the you might call it the American success myth that is embedded really in the American dream that not only do the, are these things possible, but they're our right. And somehow, if we just exercise enough control and we prepare ourselves and we're smart enough and, and brutal enough, we can grab on to that success that is our inalienable right. And once we have that, we won't need anyone. We'll be self-contained. We'll, we'll have everything we need and won't need anyone. Um, you can see it in the most disparate places, this virus that you can be like gods. The, in, the, in a hugely popular TV show right now, The Bachelor, that show is a show about uh, a guy who thinks he's a god <laughs> and can uh, marshal his own harem of, of women and can be in and out of relationship with uh, any of those women and have all the rest of them be okay with that um, in the end and then select one out of that whole harem of girls. I, I can't imagine the uh, application process for a guy who's going to be on that show. That has to be the most narcissistic guy on the face of the earth who thinks they can go on to a show like that and um, uh, basically take his pick from you know 15 or 20 women who are all vying to be the one for him so you see this a little bit, uh, you know, threaded into even popular shows like that, or celebrity culture, or TED Talk culture, where 
We elevate people who have an expertise in something, and and we uh, think of them in godlike ways that, wow, that person can really not only uh, change themselves, but change the world through what they're talking about. Or you could think about uh, the evidence of this virus that we can be like gods in the medical community, where the medical community sometimes believes uh, through breakthroughs in research and, and practice that we can do anything, that in fact we could even um, help people to live for eternity, to overcome the specter of death and disease. Uh, we're reminded, though, of the limitations of all that. Even though I mentioned the coronavirus. The, the Chinese doctor who fir- first warned about this coronavirus caught it from one of his patients and just died uh, just in the last 24 hours when I'm recording this. So it, it's just a reminder that even though there are breakthroughs they, uh, um, that lead the medical community to think maybe we can solve every problem that we have in the medical world— the, the, the reality is we can't, and we're reminded of it all the time. Or you could go on and on of how we see this virus, that we can be like God's showing up. Uh, filmmakers who create worlds that are just uh, otherworldly to us, that, that immerse ourselves in it, they create their own world and their own narratives and their own myths. Um, or you can see it in autocratic rulership around the world, uh, men and women who... Uh, believe that they have such power that they can control the lives of millions of people on a whim. So we could go on and on and on about this. This lie is everywhere. It shows up in a million different faces, and it always will. It's the central lie of our existence. So the mission of Jesus here is simple. He, he has to remove the virus from us because, again, it carries with it death. Another way of describing this virus is the work of the devil. So you can be like God's is the work of the devil. That is the virus that Jesus is trying to eradicate. So here's how John, uh, who describes himself as the disciple Jesus loved, describes the mission of Jesus. This is, this is where we get some of this language around um, what is Jesus' mission in our life. Um, this is from 1 John uh, chapter 3, verse 8. I'm going to read this from the Amplified Version of the Bible, because I love the way that it expands on the meaning of each, of each little phrase in, in what John says. So here we go, 1 John 3, 8 from the Amplified Bible. Here's what he writes. The one who practices sin, which means, in parentheses, separating himself from God and offending him by acts of disobedience, indifference, or rebellion— That's the expanded version of sin there, separating from God, offending him by acts of disobedience, indifference, or rebellion. He said, the one who practices that is of the devil, and in parentheses, and takes his inner character and moral values from him, not God. So uh, this expansion of of this is, is trying to describe what it means to be of the devil, and the expansion is we take on the inner character and moral values from him, not from God. That's what it means to be of the devil. So the one who practices sin is the one who takes on the inner character of the devil. And then he goes on, For the devil has sinned and violated God's law from the beginning. And the Son of God, Jesus, appeared for this purpose. Here it is. This is the reason he appeared, to destroy the works of the devil. That's why Jesus has come. So in the, in the uh, film... 
The Passion of the Christ, just a sledgehammer of a film. Um, it, it, it's an exploration of the passion and death of of Jesus and filmmaker. The filmmaker on that, I'm sure you remember, is Mel Gibson, and um, he reimagined what destroying the works of the devil might look like metaphorically. So, and he embedded it in this powerful scene in the film that is in the Garden of Gethsemane. So Jesus is there on the eve of heading to the cross, and he's with his disciples, and he asks them to be with him as he agonizes alone and hashes things out with his Father as he's on the precipice of the cross. And it's not just the the horror of the, the mode of execution he's about to face, but also taking on the sin of the world and, and being, uh, for a time, separate from God, taking on the weight of the sin. Um, this is absolutely terrifying, and we will never understand what the prospect of this felt like for Jesus, because we were not uh, um, with the Trinity from the dawn of time in close, intimate relationship. We have no idea the magnitude of the horror that was in front of Jesus. And so he's in Gethsemane, he's in agony over about what's to happen, what's about to happen. His disciples can't stay awake, they keep falling asleep. And in this scene, in, in The Passion of the Christ, Jesus is alone there under the moonlight, wrestling all this out, and Mel Gibson has the figure of Satan standing there next to Jesus as he is wrestling this out, this this specter of Satan. And Satan, the way Satan is depicted in the film, is so spot on. It's hard to, to pin down what gender Satan is in the film, and there's an ugliness about the Satan character in the film, but only if you look close. <laughs> uh, from a distance, Satan does not appear ugly, but it's the closer you get, the uglier he is. So there he is in the garden, standing next to Jesus as Jesus wrestles this out, and he's trying to tempt Jesus into giving up whatever it is he feels like he's on a mission to do. And about halfway through the scene, a snake comes sliding out from under the cloak of Satan, and starts slithering across the ground toward Jesus. It's a tense scene. The music kind of gets tense behind it, and you see this snake just getting closer and closer to Jesus. And then it's on Jesus, and and the, you can the the tension is thick. Jesus is in agony. What's going to the, the snake is about to bite, and then in this fell swoop, Jesus crushes the head of the snake, just stomps on the head of the snake. It's a violent scene, and it's his declaration that of his love for his Father and his commitment to the plan the Trinity has come up with to bridge that, that chasm so that we can be back in relationship. He is fiercely loyal to his Father, um, and he's living here, uh, uh, by the way, by the same standard of love that he's trying to reestablish in us. He is tortured by the choice in front of him, and the important thing to understand there is that it's a choice, that even though the Trinity has come up with this brilliant strategy for our redemption, Jesus must still choose it. He's not forced into it, he has chosen it, and in this scene, he re-chooses it again, and that's the power of that scene when he stomps on the head of that uh, snake. He has a snake-stomping heart. That's what we take from that scene, that he will destroy 
what Satan intends to plant. And um, though Adam and Eve fell for this deception, Jesus does not in the Garden of Gethsemane. He, uh, he doesn't fall for any of Satan's deceptions along the way. So let's just now explore what destroy the works of the devil really looks like. What does it really mean? Uh, I, I thought we'd choose just a, a, a kind of a random chapter, chapter from the Gospel of Luke, and we'll, we'll just go on a little mission here to find examples of Jesus destroying the works of the devil, so we have a better, more practical understanding of what that looks like. So remember, we're looking for ways he's trying to extract this virus, which is you can be like God's. So let me just uh, pop through Luke chapter 5 here real quick, and I'm not going to read through the whole thing, obviously. I'm just going to give you an, a little bit of an overview um, of what is in Luke chapter 5. So it starts off with a section where Jesus calls his first disciples and where he uh, steps onto Simon's fishing boat after Simon was done for the day, um, because the crowd is kind of pressed in around him, and he needs to push out into the water so he's not so crowded around. So he chooses Simon's boat, and Simon doesn't really want to go back out of the water, but it's Jesus, the rabbi, he's the hot new thing, so he pushes out in the water with him, and and along the way, uh, Jesus tells him to go out where it's deeper and cast his nets, and Simon's like, look, I'm the fisherman here. We've already tried that, and now's not even the time of day um, when you can catch fish. Um, it's impossible, and what's more, when we were fishing during the time you can catch fish, we caught nothing. But he does it anyway, lets down his nets, and they have this huge take of fish. Um, and Simon, uh, we'll come back to this story, but this just undoes Simon when this happens. In the next part of Luke 5, we see Jesus healing a man with leprosy who had an advanced case of leprosy, and uh, Jesus heals him and then tells him to go show himself to the priest, um, like what you do when you're cleansed of leprosy, to, to, make, to, to make it official that what's just happened really happened. And then the next part, Jesus heals a paralyzed man. This is the story of when this paralyzed man's friends are trying to get him in to see Jesus so Jesus can heal him, but the crowd is too big, and there's no room inside the, the, the home that Jesus is speaking in, so they cut a hole in the roof and they lower him down. And the first thing Jesus does instead of fixing his, his paralyzed limbs is he tells him his sins are forgiven. So we'll go back to that one too. The next thing that happens in Luke chapter 5 is that Jesus calls Matthew as one of his disciples, and Matthew is a tax collector, the worst of the worst. He's a betrayer. He's a he's a uh, turncoat. He's he's despised in Jewish culture because he's a collaborator with the Roman rulers. And typically, these tax collectors are corrupt because they have the power of the Roman government behind them. So they skim whatever, whenever and however they can. So in every way. He's an undesirable, and yet Jesus calls him and asks if he will follow him, and then goes to his house to eat and drink with him, and raises the ire of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law when they see what he's doing. Um, so we'll come back to that one as well, and then the last part of Luke chapter 5 is uh, Jesus uh, talking about fasting and how now is not the time to fast because I'm here. You don't fast when uh, when you're at a celebration. Um, you know that comes from at another time in your life. When you're at a celebration, you'd eat and drink. 
and now is the time of celebration. So we'll come back to that one as well. So let's just explore these these different sections of Luke chapter 5 and explore how is it that Jesus is destroying the works of the devil in each one of these scenes. So let's let's go back to Simon, where Jesus is calling him out on his boat in the middle of the ocean, in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, when the when they have let down their nets and have this huge catch of fish. So uh, what is happening here? Well, first of all, Jesus is showing Simon he's not just a rabbi, not just a teacher. He is showing mastery and authority over this fundamental aspect of creation. So what what slays Simon is that P, uh, Jesus has just done something that Simon knows is impossible. It shouldn't happen, it can't happen, and yet it did happen. So Jesus is expressing his authority and power and strength and mastery over all of creation. He is showing his elevation. Um, he is showing, I'm not like you. <laughs> I am different. Um, he is, in, in a sense, undergirding his words that he is the Messiah by showing Simon he's the Messiah, not just saying it. Now, there's lots of people that have come along that were, quote-unquote, great teachers, great communicators, who pass themselves off as, as um, the Messiah. But it was just words. None of what they claimed actually could be backed up by real authority and the real sense of uh, uh, otherness that Jesus shows in this scene. So Simon suddenly realizes that the, the other, capital O, is standing in his boat— <laughs> that the God of the universe is standing in his boat, and he's suddenly exposed in this moment. Um, so so uh, uh, Simon, you got to get inside his head here again, he has built a business, a small commercial fishing business, in an age when most people are slaves, so he's a very self-sufficient man, um, and he has been for a long time. Um, it's this self-sufficiency that has to be toppled and broken— before he will follow Jesus, pursue Jesus, and allow Jesus, Jesus's heart to ruin his heart. So um, think about how Jesus is, is tweaking Simon's uh, own self-sufficiency here. He's fished with all of his mastery and ability and caught nothing, and Jesus just casually says, throw the net over the side, and he catches a catch too big to haul into one boat. So he's exposing Simon's self-sufficiency and saying, there's a sufficiency higher than your self-sufficiency. It's in me. So he's exposing this self-sufficient attitude that is a branch on the tree of, I can be like God. Um, if I can just build my business and build my mastery in my business, I start to think that I'm master of my own domain here, that I really don't need God in the end, because look how well I'm doing. And Jesus... Uh, very purposefully exposes this sort of attitude in Simon. When we are self-satisfied and self-sufficient, we, uh, we are averse to dependence, and dependence, our attachment to Jesus, is our salvation. So one way of saying that is that Simon, uh, inside the, the interior narrative, is, you know, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good guy. Look at the hard work that I've done, and look at the success I've had. Um, Look at how I've elevated myself in life. Um, and here Jesus is, is 
<laughs> exposing that. And Simon knows it. He Here's what he says. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, this huge catch of the fish, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh, Lord, please leave me. I'm such a sinful man. This is the most positive thing that could have happened. This is the uh, Simon's open door to Jesus. Instead of doubling down on his self-sufficiency, Simon says, you've exposed my self-sufficiency. You've exposed my sin. You need to get off this boat. I'm not even worthy to be next to you. And that is exactly the kind of invitation Jesus needs. His Simon here is moving from independence to dependence. Think about how he's destroying the works of the devil when he does this. The devil's work is independence and self-sufficiency. You can be like God's. And here Simon is forswearing that uh, independence and self-sufficiency for dependence. He's saying, you can't even be on my boat. And then uh, Jesus uh, says back to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. It's not even an invitation. Jesus is just saying, hey, you know what? You're going to be with me. From this point on, you're going to be with me. He's not asking Simon, hey, do you want to follow me? He's just saying, you will be. Um, And the invitation you've just given to me proves it. You're inviting dependence back into your life. The next one, when Jesus heals the man with leprosy, um, let me just read the very beginning of that. When the man saw Jesus, he bowed with his face to the ground, begging to be healed. Lord, he said, if you're willing, you can heal me and make me clean. And Jesus reached out and touched him and said, I'm willing, be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappeared. So here is this man in advanced leprosy. Um, Again, once again, it's impossible to simply have a medical treatment and have it all go away. Um, It's advanced, so he's near death. And here this man says, if you're willing, you can do this. He's not questioning whether Jesus can do it. He's simply um, asking Jesus, if, if you want to, you can. Do you want to? And Jesus says, I do. So here Jesus is cleansing a man, think about it, of the consequence of sin. Death is at work in this man, and it's, and it's showing up physically. So Jesus is here showing his mastery over the working of death in this, in this man's life. He will go on to do this time after time, to show people that he is above death, not below death. So he's, he's here revealing the, the restoration heart of Jesus. So the work of the devil is to separate us from God, to make us believe we can be like God's, and the way back the restoration process is to invite us back into attachment with, with God, attachment with Jesus. So here we see Jesus restoring this man physically by taking away the consequence of death of this betrayal and inviting him back into relationship. In the next story, it's similar. It's where Jesus um, heals the paralyzed man. And the, and the paralyzed man, again, is lowered down in front of Jesus, and Jesus, instead of first um, healing him of his, of his paralyzation, he says, young man, your sins are forgiven. And then the Pharisees and teachers of religious law say to themselves, well, who does this guy think he is? That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Yep, that's right. Jesus is once again declaring that uh, who he is and the authority he has. He has authority over the working of death in our lives, including this paralyzation. Jesus, it says, knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, 
Why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? So I'll prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he, pr- he, he makes us his proof, telling the paralyzed man to stand up, pick up his, his mat, and go home. So here, here Jesus is showing in a physical way, in an obvious way, that he has authority to forgive sins. It's almost like he's saying, hey, Pharisees, there's a new sheriff in town. No longer does this deceiver, this liar, this Satan um, get to say that he is Lord of the earth. He, um, he is underneath my authority in every aspect of death and its working out, including the consequences of sin, I am Lord over. Um, and, he's, and he's doing this in sort of a, a partnering relationship. If you notice, um, he says to the man, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. Yeah, it's, something is required of the man, the paralyzed man. He must now, even though he's been uh, flat on his back on a mat his, his whole life, he must now stand up and take up his mat and go home. He has to do something. And here Jesus is saying, yes, Adam and Eve participated in, this, in the destruction of the relationship, and now you will participate in the restoration of this relationship. And part of that is stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. He is counteracting um, and backtracking the volition of Adam and Eve by asking this man to stand up and do something on behalf of his own healing. And let's let's quickly do the last couple here. When Jesus calls Matthew the tax collector and then parties with him afterwards and endures the withering criticism of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, here Jesus is, is saying to the, the Pharisees, uh, his kind of exclamation mark on this whole thing, in verse 31 of Luke 5, he says, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I've come not to call those who think they're righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. So Jesus here is saying, I haven't come for sick people. I, 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 I have, uh, he's, I'm sorry, he's come for the sick people, for the people who want and need a doctor. And the restoration that they're being offered it's not a party trick. It's not magic. The restoration is in him, not in self-help. He's, he's saying, those who recognize their help comes from outside of themselves, I am restoring them into relationship. Again, uh, do you hear the lie being destroyed underneath there? You can be like God's. You can figure this out for yourself. Instead, Jesus is saying, no, I come for people who re- recognize they can't figure it out for themselves that they will operate in the kind of trust that Adam and Eve once had. Finally, um, when Jesus talks about fasting at the very end of Luke 5, it's interesting because he's, he's saying, well, uh, when, the, when the Pharisees ask him, why don't your disciples fast and, and pray like others do, and why are, you, why are you always eating and drinking? And Jesus responds, do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from him, and then they will fast. And then he talks about um, not putting uh, new wine in old wineskins. And uh, this is a powerful tipping point thing he's saying here. He's really announcing that there's a new covenant, and that the old structure of the law of the Old Testament cannot contain the new covenant, that that, that old structure is, is not uh, able to, to hold in the new covenant, which is represented by him. It's freedom. 
And the fact that his disciples are not fasting because Jesus is with them is a foretaste for us. Jesus is with us as well. And whether or not we fast for a period of time to focus ourselves on him is immaterial. The point Jesus is making is that we've entered the time of celebration, of a restoration of the joy that existed before Adam and Eve did what they did. That And that celebration is, is recognized in feasting and eating and drinking. We're celebrating. We're in the age of celebration. And this new wine, this age of celebration, doesn't fit in the wineskins of the old wine, which was um, a system of appeasement to carry us through to the Messiah. So Jesus here is uh, uh, working back, backwards, to the purity of the relationship we once had with him, and saying, now this new wine that's about to, that we're about to drink, um, that anyone can drink it, and, and as they do, they're joining Jesus in the celebration of this new age, um, where we have left behind death, that, that there is no victory in death any longer. It's gone. Jesus took care of it, that, that our life now is, is uh, dominated by life, not death. And this is a restoration, a bridge over the chasm for us. It's not just that we can be in relationship with Jesus now. It's that we become what we were always intended to be, and we live the life he always uh, wanted to have with us. Intimacy, freedom, celebration, and freedom from the consequences of sin, freedom to partner with him in his mission to release captives in the world. Freedom is what Jesus brings, um, and prison is what, and captivity is what Satan intends to do. That's his work. So when Jesus says, I have come to set captives free, he is also saying, I have come to destroy the work of the devil. And what he is doing in my life and in your life is destroying the work of the devil. Wherever this virus appears, I can be like a god. He intends to destroy that, to give us the opportunity and the invitation to um, come into a dependent relationship with him again and leave behind our self-sufficiency. So just to close, um, here's something you can quietly ask Jesus right now. Just pause for a moment, be quiet. Just ask Jesus, Jesus, where, where do you see evidence of the virus in me? Where do you see evidence of I can be like a God in me? Well, in that moment, uh, will you be bold enough to just ask Jesus to destroy that work in you, to, to do away with it, to call you out of that captivity of self-sufficiency so that you can follow him? And like Simon, fish for men, <laughs> that, that a great purpose in life, a lofty, uh, epic purpose worthy of our salvation is to, is to help others find freedom from their captivity, to catch fish, but this time the fish are people. So in Jesus' name, I, I pray this over you, that if you just invited Jesus to destroy that virus in you, that you are free indeed, and that you, whatever happens from, from this point, that you can receive this as the ferocious love of Jesus eradicating the virus from your life and uh, inviting you into freedom. 
Well, gang, thanks for listening. This, again, is paying ridiculous attention to Jesus. You can um, check out our episode page for links to anything we've talked about today at painridiculousattentiontojesus.com. You're going to be looking for Season 5, Episode 6 there. And um, by the way, you can subscribe to this podcast um, on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts if you want to make sure you never miss one. Please tell your friends if you if this has been valuable for you. It might, it's probably valuable for them. And uh, I also invite you to check out our private Facebook page for those who listen to this podcast and want to be in community with each other. It's called The Pigs. Um, we'll have a link to that page on our on our episode page, uh, Season 5, Episode 6. And you can head on over there and request uh, to be invited into that into that community, and, uh, and you'll be in. So, gang, um, looking forward to talking to you again next week. We'll see you then.